This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi, this is Lizzie Pook talking to Sam on the Right Way Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Lizzie Pook. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. Person whom you just heard introduced in this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program is none other than tonight's guest. Speaking to me all the way from merry old England, uh, different time zone and all that. It's her morning, it's my evening. But yes, I have the good fortune of speaking to Lizzie Pook about her debut novel, Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter. Historical fiction novel set within uh, Western Australia, 1896, uh, centered around a fictional fictional uh, settlement called Bannon Bay, uh, but that being said, even though it is a work of fiction uh, and it is a fictional town, it's incredibly well realised uh, due to Lizzie's exhaustive research that which she did that we discussed at detail at great length about uh, her being boots on the ground, going to all these amazing places around Broome and the like, around WA, a place that I myself yearn to go to, and sort of... Uh, yeah, Lizzie's process of kind of uh, taking or documenting as much as she possibly could from her time there and then kind of bringing that back with her to uh, England and then writing this novel which is centred around Eliza Brightwell as she's waiting for her father's uh, boat, his lugger, to return uh, Charles Brightwell, Master Perler, but unfortunately he has gone missing at sea and what that sort of launches is her investigation, trawling through some of the most uh, dangerous areas of Bannon Bay meeting an uh, uh, endless succession of colourful characters, some really good baddies, I must say, and just generally, uh, yeah, incredibly well-realised story. Uh, had me going from beginning to end. Love the characters. Such a strong sense of place, which I think was also attributed to Lizzie's uh, time as a travel writer as well. Again, that's something we discussed as well. So far be it from me to kind of uh, talk too much in the overview about that so how about we instead go straight to the interview now so everyone give a big digital round of applause to lizzie pook talking to me about her debut novel moonlight and the perler's daughter lizzie thank you so much for joining me on the right way podcast this evening how you doing i'm good thank you so much for having me it's lovely to be chatting with you it is lovely to be chatting with you too i really like that i'm kind of seeing some lovely wallpaper there i'm not even sure what i'm looking at there that's almost like some flora and fauna that wouldn't look out of place in Bannon bay i know it's like a jungle themed uh, wallpaper behind me because i am in my gray london uh, spare room so i need to uh yeah make myself feel i'm at least somewhere uh, nice and warm and uh, inspirational because uh these four walls aren't that inspirational, unfortunately. Yeah, well, it's not all <laughs> sunshine, sunshine lollipops at the moment in Sydney either. But um, Lizzie, what I wanted to start with is an oldie but a goodie. And I know that you've done a lot of travel writing and I think that um, kind of I have some idea of how this is going to go with the answer. But I wanted to know where the inspiration for Moonlight and the Pearless Daughter actually came from originally because was that to do with your traveling you obviously mentioned extensively in the acknowledgements that you that you've been all around sort of uh, the broom sort of area tell me tell me a little bit about where the idea stemmed from yeah so it was actually one of those ideas that came in stages it wasn't mm. one sort of fault of inspiration but the first um part came when i was traveling through western australia with my twin sister we were doing a road trip, we were driving, driving from Perth to Darwin. Um, and we ended up in Fremantle and we had a, a free afternoon and we, uh, we decided to take a look around the Maritime Museum there. Um, and sort of tucked away among the, the ships and the, 
anchors and what have you and all that paraphernalia was a tiny little exhibition about a family of British settlers who'd sailed across to Shark Bay in WA um, and they had sort of established themselves in the pearling industry. Um, that I found interesting anyway because I didn't know much about the pearling industry but um, the matriarch of that family who was a woman called um, Eliza Broadhurst really stuck out because she was a pretty formidable woman, um, especially for that time. You know, she survived uh, storms and shipwrecks. She set up a school in the outback. She was an early feminist, um, we would call her that now. Um, and she subscribed to sort of feminist literature. Um, and so that idea of this British settler family with a very strong-willed woman at its center sort of stuck in my mind for a long time. But it was actually only when on a completely different trip I ended up in Broome um, in the Northwest Kimberley. And um, as I'm sure you'll know, Broome is just the most ridiculously beautiful place you could ever see. You know, it really is stunning with its bright red, you know, pindon soil and its, you know, paradise style seas and mangroves and things like that. And so, you know, I was visually um, fascinated by this place, but I was also shocked um, when I learned just how dangerous the pearl diving industry is. So Broome is an, an early pearling town. Um, and while on its surface that might appear very romantic and um, you know, dashing male adventurers going out onto the seas to be gifted sort of pearls, that really was not the case. It was um, A, a very exploitative industry in the, the, the labor that was used in, in order to sort of um, gather these pearls. Um, and just really, really dangerous. And I became fascinated by the idea of, you know, men and women and children in the early stages of pearling who were forced to dive, but in the hard hat stages of pearling, men descending to the bottom of the sea um, in these heavy suits and these sort of uh, you know, airtight canvas suits, almost looking like spacemen, walking along the bottom of the sea and coming up against all sorts of dangerous stuff. So, you know, sharks, sea snakes, whales their air pipes could become entangled in the flukes of whales and they could be dragged through the water until they drowned you know or many many of them succumbed to um, the divers paralysis that we now know of as the bends um and i was just hooked on this really what i felt was this just fascinating sort of almost hidden part of history because this was a part of the world where people at that time in the mid 19th century people from all over the world descended on this tiny little sort of red dust mm. township of Broome um, to set up in this pearling industry and to hunt for pearl shell. And so I then had the idea to have a British settler family in this part of the world, in this sort of industry, um, and to see how that would, how they would get on. So that's basically how the idea sort of came into place. But that was over several years. So mm. it was quite a lengthy process of coming to that final idea for the story. I did get that impression in terms of there was like obviously quite a substantial amount of research that went into it. You thanked two people, I mean you thanked a lot of people by name, but the two that stood out for me, um, I believe it, I've actually got water that's dropped exactly on, on it, but Hugh Edwards and Susan Sickert, I think, am I pronouncing that yeah. correctly? Early yeah. chroniclers of, of broom, broom history. Yeah, so that was interesting because Hugh Edwards, he, he wrote a book called Port of Pearls, which was, uh, uh, well, I mean, he's written hundreds of books. He's, he's so knowledgeable about this part of the world. But one of his books, Port of Pearls, about the first 100 years of Broome, I actually came across by complete accident. 
while I was in Fremantle on that first trip with my twin sister, we were in a secondhand bookshop and I saw this book with a sort of um, diving helmet on the front, picked it up and thought that looks really interesting. Um, bought it, didn't think much about it. Um, and then obviously several years later, it became one of the most important sort of points of uh, reference for me when I was researching this book. So it was just so filled with interesting stories of early broom and the pearl divers and sort of the dangers that they faced. And Susan Sickert, um, she wrote a book called uh, Behind the Lattice, either Beyond the Lattice or Behind the Lattice, apologies if I've got that wrong. Um, and I found that in the uh, Kimberley bookshop just when I was strolling around broom and just again picked that up and thought it looked interesting. But I couldn't have written this book without mm. those two books um, and so they just proved really really useful and they also proved that truth is stranger than fiction because I was able to use some of the real life tales in those books as inspiration for my story and there was just so much stuff that I came across that I couldn't believe actually happened and I was I just thought I have to I have to pinch that and I have to fictionalize it for my book things like in Susan's book she, she wrote about a, a bosun called Conrad Gill and he had the a talking parrot and he would walk around the streets of Broome with a gold earring and a, a talking parrot on his shoulder and this parrot would cause mischief it would steal money you know the men would feed it rum it would get drunk it would it would steal pearls it was like a real character um and so I really wanted to include something like that in my book so there is Conf there's a cockatoo Confucius, character yeah. in my book Confucius, Confucius exactly. yes Confucius yeah yeah, yeah. And, and he almost acts as a sort of not silent narrator, he's pretty noisy, but he, he leads the reader through the story and, and points us towards certain clues. And so, yeah, I really lucked out with them um, coming across those, those two books. But there, there, was, there was so much stuff that um, really helped in, in my research. And as you said, it was a long, a long research process that took me from the sort of corridors of the British Library here in the UK to remote pearl farms out on the Dampier Peninsula, out in, out in Western Australia, or interviewing crocodile experts or bus drivers or um you know walking the landscapes with guides or camping on cliff tops so, so it really was an immersive research process and, and, and a labor of love but i think i was lucky in that i just found a subject that i was pretty much obsessed with and um yeah sort of propelled me propelled me on this year's long research journey yeah that's culminated in this book well, it's definitely easy to, I mean, it's, it's certainly fertile ground uh, for your imagination and to be kind of fascinating. I mean, I, I, you mentioned about like it's, it's an uh, oft under, underknown or underrepresented sort of uh, part of history. I knew nothing about it, to be honest. Uh, I mean, Australia lived in my entire life. I, I didn't know anything about the pearl of trade uh, and all components. I've heard that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and this, the stories that you've kind of woven into it, I mean, you've already mentioned one as well, which I think, um, I forget, I did write his name down. I think he was a Japanese. Uh, Kariyami's fatal. I've written, written Kariyami's fatal whale ride. So the one. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that, so, that's that's something that actually happened too. So yeah. um, you know, we're reading lots of early adventurers' accounts of sort of the waters around Western Australia when researching this book, and and just couldn't believe that there was this actual real life story of of two divers descending to to um, the seabed and. Um, their air pipes, yeah, becoming hooked on on the tail of a whale and eventually being dragged through um, the water until they drowned. And the men on the ship would have seen their air pipes sort of just mm. you know 
being torn through the water and, and, and they wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. And um, there were so many stories like that that I came across that, and, and just couldn't believe that these things actually happened. So yeah, it was a very rich theme and I was really lucky in that there were just loads of really interesting real life stories um, that I was able to sort of to use for, for my own book. But uh, yeah, that was, that, was a, that was a very shocking one, the Wales one, I think. <laughs> it definitely was a shocking one. I'm glad that you got to weave it in there as well. So, so Lizzie, you did get to go and travel quite extensively around the sort of the locations in which you've kind of been fictionalised into Banner Bay and sort of surrounds. Is that, is that right? Because there was just such a strong sense of place that kind of, and I, I was going to ask you if you sort of attribute that to being a seasoned sort of travel writer and kind of taking snippets that then kind of you wove into this, this novel, how did that sort of go for you? I have been really lucky in that I, I have been able to travel out to Australia quite a lot um, for personal trips because I love it. Australia means a lot to me, um, but also in a work sense. Yes, I've, I've been a travel writer for, for years and I do think that when your job is to try and convey sense of place really quickly as a travel mm. writer, it, it, it can be something that transfers into fiction as well, because you're literally taking everything you can, sights, sounds, smells, and putting it on the page for a reader so they can really try and feel that they're in that place. But I'm a very um, visual writer as well. So when I was doing these research trips out to, to WA, I was taking loads of video, um, loads of uh, photos obviously and stuff like that um sound recordings as well on the sort of voice voice memo app on my phone so I've got loads of soundscapes on my phone that's just sort of birds or the sound of like the sea or, or things like that and back here in the UK I, I actually plastered my walls of the spare room where I write um with pictures of the landscapes um around Kimberley around the Kimberley and particularly Broome um pictures of divers pictures of um yeah, women settlers out there at the time, um, especially ones that looked pretty badass, you know, with their boots and their sort of in their hammocks and stuff like that. Um, and so, yes, I do think that writing about um, sense of place and travel and um, destinations and experiences for a living hopefully informed the, the sense of place in this book. But that's just just what I love anyway. I love being immersed in sort of the noisy, dirty, um, you know, just interesting parts of a place. Like I'm, I'm always interested in the underbelly of somewhere as well. It's not necessarily, you know, that I want to see the most beautiful things. I want to know like the dark stories about places as well. I'm really drawn um, particularly to the sort of darker parts of history as well. That, that's what inspires me as a, as a historical fiction writer, certainly. I was interested because, I mean, the description certainly, obviously, through osmosis of absorbing all these, you know, photos and everything that you've kind of recorded um, fastidiously on your, on your travels and then taking it back to kind of what can be sometimes dreary, rainy London and then eventuating that into or realising that into, into the story has certainly, certainly shone through. I think some of, for me, the images, I mean, there was, there was the balance of the beauty and the darkness, like, the, you know, the beautiful and the grotesque, particularly there was a, there was like a, a somewhere where there was a dugong corpse. I think that was being eaten by cats. I really liked, <laughs> I liked that. There was various sort of, it was lots of dead things. I must say lots of, lots of dead things were really uh, elegantly, exquisitely described. I found some of my favorite sort of passages were to do with that. But I, I, my guess is probably around that sort of time, there probably would have been a lot of dead or dying uh sort of animals or humans in that kind of uh, settlement. I mean, you really captured the sort of uh, sometimes natural beauty, but then kind of uh, fused with 
squalor, I guess, that a lot of people were forced to live in. Thank you for, for saying that you think it worked well, but uh, that really was something that struck me in my research as well. Reading about the sort of living conditions um, at this, that you know, how people would have lived in, in this particular place at this particular time. Um, you know, this was a town that was filled essentially with rotting shellfish because, you know, you had these tons of pearl shell that would have been brought back to the, mm. you know, they would have been stored in the, in the holds of the luggers and the schooners and then they would have been brought back to um, the town and then they would have been either, um, sometimes they were left to rot in things called pogey pots. And so they were basically sort of big barrels and the shells would be left in these barrels and, and the, the pearl meat would be left to rot and so any pearls within them would sink to the bottom and then they'd be retrieved that way. So you would have this stench of sort of rotting shellfish. Um, you know, all that, they, you know, you had packing sheds and there would have been loads of shell in there. So it would have really been a sort of stinking, sweltering place, but also life on the luggers as well. It, they lived alongside cockroaches, mm. rats, you know, all sorts of insects. And I was really fascinated to hear about how the pearlers would you know, desperately try and they'd flood their luggers. They would tip their luggers on the side, flood them with seawater in the hopes that the cockroaches would then sort of be washed out of the, of, of the ships. And then eventually what would happen is you'd have all the fish gathering around those ships to eat those cockroaches. And then the men would then pluck those fish out of the water and eat those fish. Um, and so it just really, you know, I just, I loved the idea of this place that, is what it would have been naturally incredibly incredibly beautiful mm. but the living conditions would have been you know insufferable at times sand flies humidity storms um and then obviously you had this massive economic divide as well so you had people you know you had cr very multinational crews living in these sort of foreshore cramped foreshore camps um and then you would have had wealthy white mm -hmm. master pearlers and their families um living in these expansive, lush, sort of white fenced bungalows, um, you know, away from the, from the shore. So there was this real juxtaposition of extreme wealth and extreme sort of um, poverty and, and forced indentured labor as well. And so, so that interested me too, that you, you had this sort of, this place where people of all sorts of backgrounds and from all sorts of sort of, um, yeah, socioeconomic backgrounds rubbing up against one another. And that just fascinated me as well. We've talked about natural beauty. We've talked about the, then you've just dovetailed nicely with the living conditions and some of the sort of uh, societal structures that you have there. Tell me a little bit about the Brightwells as well at the core of the story, because I feel that it was at its heart, it was a story about a father and a daughter, particularly with what Eliza uh, I was willing to, I've got a lot of questions lined up with this one, but first of all, let's, let's talk a little bit about was it the dynamic between, between the Brightwells and kind of how that, cause that, that to me sounds like that's the, the core, the kernel from which the story kind of then eventuated from, but what do you think? That's for me what it was about. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think at its heart, this is a book about um, the relationship between a father and a daughter mm. and the lengths that we will go to for, our families and the people that we love. So at the beginning of the story, we, we have Eliza Brightwell waiting for her brother Thomas and her father Charles to return from their um, sort of pearling season out on the lugger out at sea. Um, and we soon learn that Eliza's mother has, has passed away. 
Um, that's, that's not a spoiler. Um, but it means that she really has clung to this relationship with, with her father and she, she sort of idolizes him mm. in a way. He's very much responsible for her sort of love and fascination with nature and the environment and, and things like that. And um, her brother, Thomas, as we soon learn, has struggled with the, the death of their, their mother quite a lot and is probably one of the most morally grey characters in, in the book. We don't really know what to make of, of, of Thomas. Um, and I wanted to write a book about a father-daughter relationship because mm. my own father died when I was 19. Um, and I wanted to... I hadn't seen many books that focused on that as sort of the main, the, the main relationship in the story. And, and, and the thing with Charles in this book, so, you know, the book is about Eliza searching for her missing father. Charles is absent throughout, you know, I'm not going to give anything away, but he's, he's absent for, you know, a lot of the book. <laughs> um, and I wanted to explore how someone could be present without actually being mm. present. Um, you know, I know when my own dad passed away, I dreamt about him every night for five years. I remember when it stopped happening, you know, it was that, it was that regular. Um, and through, you know, Charles's diaries in the book um, and uh, Eliza's memories of, of Charles and thoughts of Charles, he is very, very present, even though physically he is not there for the majority of the book. And so that's something that I really wanted to explore. You know, I, I, this could have been a very romantic book. You know, mm. it's a book about pearls. It's a book about, you know, a beautiful part of the world. But I didn't want, you know, there, there, you know, you could argue that there is some romance in the book and there are some subplots that, that touch upon that. But I didn't want that to be the main driving force mm. of the story. I wanted the main driving force of the story to be, um, A, this, this father-daughter relationship, and also B, um, grief and loss and how loss can propel us into action as well. You know, Eliza's lost a lot and there's a lot at stake for her, um, but her grief and her loss turns her into a very active character. And I wanted that to be the case for lots of the characters in the book, because there are lots of characters in the book who have suffered loss, you know, whether that's loss of land, whether uh, liberty, mm. um, identity, you know, sense of belonging, um, or loss of family members. And I wanted that to be um, a propelling force for all of the characters in this book. Um, and so I, I hope that it, um, you know, has spurred them on into action rather than sort of uh, passivity. Oh, so much to unpack there. My goodness, I was like, there's like points just rattling off in my brain as you were saying all that. So <laughs> first and foremost, yeah, definitely with the, that's, that's, that's what I thought. I mean, first, like when you, when there was the introduction of, of Axel, Again, not giving anything away. I mean, there were certainly elements of like I was wondering if there might be potentially some sort of romantic sort of sort of plot. I never thought it was going to be the the main plot of what it might be potentially a subplot. But yeah, at its core, I always thought it was a story relating to a father and a daughter. Um, there was one line I really liked that was talking about she was collect she collect flora and fauna, she collect scars, she'd do anything for her father. Or I'm paraphrasing, but it's it something like that. And I thought that that definitely kind of really nicely sort of. Um, summed up their relationship and I mean yeah it's 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 interesting as well like and it's it's something that I feel like a lot of writers can revisit time and time again where it's trying to have a character that's not there that's not present but their their presence is felt um I'm sure that there's definitely a proper term for it by someone that knows knows more about that sort of uh, craft than I do but I definitely felt that as well and I mean there's like mentioning when they're younger 
in terms of discussing like the great adventure. I think it was, I think it was the great adventure as I mentioned yet. Um, so that sort of thing. And I definitely felt that, but yes, but you also mentioned dovetailed was he into it was the trauma, the trauma. And I wanted to, it's interesting that you mentioned that you described it as propelling a character forward. And I see that too, but ostensibly it's not because it's something that someone it's like a stasis there. It's like forevermore frozen in this. Um, and obviously something happens with Eliza that, uh, that I don't want to go into, um, but obviously it's something that, that, that she's never essentially gotten over that's still kind of very fresh in her mind. And yeah, it's interesting. Tell me a little bit more about this talking about, because you're saying it, it propels forward and I feel that it does, but there's like a dichotomy there because it's, it's propulsion as well as this stasis of being unable to move seemingly at the same time. Talk a little, more, a little bit more about that because I found that really interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. I wanted Eliza to be a physically active character mm. and I wanted her to, you know, when I was, when I was uh, researching this book, I've read a lot of 19th century adventure fiction and that was all about men mm. doing things, you know, men getting the action and women serving the drinks or making the dinner at home. Um, and so I wanted to put a, a female character in that sort of very classically, um, you know, 19th century sort of adventure novel. Um, and so I, I needed her and I wanted her to be physically um, active. Mm. But I think you're right. She is dragged down, almost like you would have sort of seaweed dragging her down under the surface by trauma and by things that have happened to her in the past. And I think that's just a realistic representation of grief and, yep. and trauma, you know, you have to go about your everyday life. You have to um, be active and, and, and do these things. But the stuff that has happened to you in the past will never leave you. Mm. Um, and so you're right, there was that dichotomy there. She, she, does, she has to be active in the story, but she is certainly held back. Um, and I think, I think, you know, she has been held back until the start, where this story mm. starts. She has been, there has been stasis for, for a while and, um, you know, she certainly wasn't sure how to deal with the death of her mother and the other thing that we won't touch on, but, but, but something very big that has happened to her in the mm. past. And I also wanted it to be representative of how when trauma happens to you, very often one of the things that will stick with you is a sense of guilt and yeah. a sense of, of shame. Um, and Guilt is something that Eliza battles with throughout this whole book. And that's not necessarily always just in terms of things that have happened in the past. She doesn't know how to marry the idea of her father, somebody who she loves and idolizes, being involved in this industry. Um, you know, and that was something that, that was a difficult balance as well, because I wanted, um, I certainly wanted, character, uh, wanted readers to root for Eliza, but I wanted them to root for Charles as well. Mm. They needed to root for Charles as well. However, he is a, was a colonist and he was involved in this, you know, horrendously exploitative industry. And so that was a really fine line to walk and, 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 and a tricky balance. But, you know, many of us have ancestors that were mm. involved in things that, that, that were unsavory and, um, morally, we would call them morally wrong these days, but, um, I certainly think that's something that we have to explore and confront um, and interrogate. 
Um, and I think that's the respectful thing to do, actually, rather than turning away from it and, and saying, oh, no, that was bad. And therefore, we do not talk about the bad thing. Mm. Um, and so that was something that I really felt um, uh, a sort of weight of responsibility in exploring this subject and um, not just not just presenting everyone as bad in it. Mm. I think that would have been irresponsible as well because that's just not truthful and that's not how we should interrogate history I, I, I think but um it was it was yeah it was a balancing act yeah but you got the full spectrum of uh like real baddie good 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 baddie baddies and then morally gray so you got like thomas kind of over on this side and then you've got parker sort of kind of at the <laughs> the very other end of the spectrum the diametrically yeah. opposed kind of thing it's interesting that you mentioned about um, there's another question I was going to ask as well about a perception of uh, you mentioned about father being colonist. And at one point, um, again, I could be paraphrasing a little bit, but I remember Eliza like kind of asking Min flat out, is my father a good man? And I'm like that in itself, I felt was another sort of theme kind of prevalent throughout, which was this. And again, it's, it's, it's to do with, you also mentioned about having a story kind of, doesn't necessarily start when the pages do it's kind of going before that so there's years long of these you know these questions that kind of uh, constantly plague someone depending upon what their circumstances are and you know their, their upbringing and who their parents are but I guess there's always kind of this want to have particularly familiar a familial sort of relationship of wanting a parent to be good and virtuous and I guess the older you get the more you're kind of inclined to accept that no one's a saint but that was the bit that I interested me as well, particularly when Eliza did say, is my dad a good man? And I wanted you to hear, I wanted to hear a little bit more Lizzie from you about that in terms of us questioning our parents, particularly and bearing in mind that um, Eliza is risking life or limb going on this absolutely insane journey, dealing with all sorts of cutthroats as well as natural kind of uh, perils in order to kind of find what's happened to him. So that in itself is just another sort of uh, layer, I guess, of the overall sort of overarching story. What do you think? Yeah, and I think it just ties into the fact that not everything is black and white, not everything mm. is good versus bad. You know, throughout history, things are consistently morally grey. Um, and that is something that I really wanted to, to get across in the book as well. And you're so right. I think it gets to a point where um, we become adults and we realise that our parents don't know everything. They're not, you know, they're not 100% good they have they have bad traits just like all of us have have bad traits and good traits and that's why i thought min's answer to that question was um important because she doesn't you know look at eliza in the eye and say yes your father was a good man because uh, that's a lie um you know she says no one is 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 all of of, of one or the other you know no no one is all good no one is all bad you know we we have good bads and good bones and bad bones within us and they sort of you know, live together and, and create a whole. Um, and and you're right. Yeah, you know, Eliza has. It is the whole book hinges on her searching for the her father and almost work, not working out if he deserves saving, but she has to ask those questions along the way. But yeah, that's what I wanted to get get across with with all my characters. You know, when, when I was thinking about this book, I was thinking very much about. Um, morality and mm. sin and atonement and you know there is one part of the book which could be read as a sort of purgatory state 
um, to do with an island and and you know it's, it's sort of this, this slightly slightly fantastical part of the book um, and I was inspired by the seven deadly sins as well when I was thinking about my characters you know not in a sort of um, uh, you know which one of these is going to fulfill this this one part the seven deadly sins but I, w I did want those things to come across in the book and for people to attribute those things to certain different characters as well and so it was all part of you know this sort of muddy messy exploration of um you know whether we are good or whether we are bad and, and and you're right i do think it comes back to this point in our lives where we realize that you know good and bad exists in in our parents and the people that we're we're supposed to be looking up to and sort of um uh, idealizing as well and um hopefully it makes for nuance um in the book as well and um you know, Eliza's not all good either. She has her, she has her own flaws. She's not, you know, she doesn't do everything right. And even with Axel, this leading male character, I wanted a leading male who had none of the attributes of a traditional, you mm. know, leading male. He's not brave. He's not, you know, he doesn't save people. Um, but I still wanted him to come across as a character that you could root for. Mm. Um, even though he's not, you know, there's this very traditional dashing male adventure. Not Fabio, he's not, he's not, he's not the kind of Fabio type on the, you know, <laughs> gracing the covers not. of um, pharmacy sort of romance Mills and Boone type <laughs> novels. No, he's absolutely not. But um, yeah, and, and so I, I felt that was important too, to have, have a sort of traditional character that was completely upended in, um, in how he was presented, so. Well, I mean, like, it's interesting that you've also mentioned about reading old adventure books and then, you know, wanting to take that sort of setting and then place it within your own sort of um, subverting the sort of tropes there, particularly with the damsel in distress, male save the day. Because I think when it came down to it in the climax, and again, I don't want to say anything too much, but the whole time I was thinking, I'm like, Eliza's saving the day. Like, that's, that's, what's, <laughs> that's, what's, that's what's going on right now. Um, albeit... Um, I don't know. I don't want to delve too much into it. I'm sure, I'm sure you understand what I'm talking about, Lizzie. But yeah, tell me a little bit about the, the influences because I feel that I'd love to know what sort of adventure novels that you were reading and then kind of wanted to put your subvert those tropes because, like, I myself have read um, when I was a child, I mean, like, I've voraciously devoured like Redwall and stuff like that. But in terms of adventure books, there's yeah. a guy called Willard Price. All of these, I mean, you know, uh, uh, there's, there's, you'd be very hard pressed to find. Um, maybe, maybe more so in Red Bull. I'll say, I'll, I'm, I'm going to say Red Bull, but it's a little bit different. But you know, like the Willard Price novels, it's huge into them. It was huge into um, Robert E. Howard, like Conan the Barbarian, which you know hasn't aged well. Um, huge into Tarzan, um, that sort of stuff. All that has not aged well. Tell me a little bit about yeah. what you, what you were reading. That's the thing, a lot of it has not aged well. Um, uh, you know, I'm talking things like Ion Idrius, who I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but um, you know, he, he wrote um, narrative nonfiction about um, certain parts of the world, and he mm. had a book called 40 Fathoms Deep, um, which was about um, Broom and, and, and the Pearl Divers, but it was very much, you know, and it's, it's a very high-octane sort of a, adventure book, and, and tales of daring do um but yes it's 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 through a sort of very colonial white mm. game um so i wanted to use things like that and sort of create a more diverse um story in that sense but also things like jules verne you know mm. i wanted to create a feminist jules verne story basically where 
you have people going to the bottom of the sea and you know exploring and, and finding things but it's it's women driving the action and actually interestingly in the early drafts of the book I had some occasions where Eliza was being rescued from situations by men and it just must have been yeah. so ingrained Entrenched, in yeah. me yeah. that that is the way that things go and so I thought no and I flipped them completely on their head and I thought no 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 and, and, and a couple of the other female characters too were saved at points and I thought no no flip that um, and so that's how it got to the point where actually I think there were very few occasions where a woman is saved from anything by I a man. <laughs> can't, can't think of one off the top of my head. I wrote, wrote a couple <laughs> okay. of times and I can't think of it off the top of my head. So how good is that though? Yeah. Like to be able to do that, to take the best elements that you've really enjoyed as a child that didn't know any better when you're reading these books and voraciously devouring them. Yeah. And then when you, when you get older, you, you now have the, insight to say to see that they haven't aged well and all the problems with them but then to still take that core sort of uh high octane you know thrill of an adventure and then kind of uh update it with modern sensibilities i think that's like the coolest thing ever i just i'll tell you what i just started reading a book have you heard of uh outlawed by anna north I love it. It's one of my favorite books. Yeah. Oh, get out yeah. of town. Well, I just started reading it. I'm about a hundred pages in. I'm loving it. I eh? love loving it. Just, just blown away. That's that, the thing. It's like a, a feminist Western, right? And yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's a bit like Godless. Did you watch Godless? No, the no. TV I'm series? No. So Godless is about a, um, a frontier town in America and, um, it's a mining town. And all the men get killed in a in a mining accident. So it's it's the women remain running this sort of um, this town, and it's yeah, it has that sort of feminist Western sentiment as well. It's really Ooh. good. It's very beautifully Ooh. shot, um, and, and worth a watch as well. So yeah, I love that sort of. The Outward is absolutely brilliant. I love that book. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, how old is that? Okay, crazy. Look, um. <laughs> I just like low key sort of derailed us there a little bit. And I wanted to talk a little bit, a couple more questions. So we've talked about the, the more sort of moral quandaries and the, the darker or the grimmer sort of elements, you know, there's, there's the, that sort of perceived sort of uh, negativity of the human condition. I wanted to talk about one of the sort of like uh, shining lights or the more positive elements I felt. And it was being the, the vocation of being a naturalist with, um, with the bright worlds. Tell me a little bit about that because that to me is just, there's, there's, I think that you'd be hard pressed to find something as uh, more wholesome than uh, a love of and wanting to preserve and you know record for posterity all the flora and fauna that one encounters, particularly in these sort of times. So tell me a little bit about that because that really shone through for me, was it? Yeah, I mean, that is something that is a personal interest as well mm. and something that was um, very much inspired by my own dad. You know, he was crazy into nature and birds and insects and things like that and um it, that's always been something that's fascinated me and you know whenever I've traveled it's always been because there's an animal I want to see in this weird place or something like that and so I really did want um pa the power of the natural world mm. and love of the natural world to come through in the book as well and um Eliza's love of the natural world is inspired by her father, but it's also inspired by Bellari, which is um, an Aboriginal character in the book as well. And so I really wanted those two things to meet. And I did want to have an indigenous character and a white character coming together and discussing um, earth and nature and um, you know, the environment. Because there is also the argument that 
you know, being a naturalist and um, collecting and um, quantifying is colonial. You know, there is mm. an argument that it is colonial. So I, that is something that I wanted to touch on as well. But, um, you know, as we find when Eliza's sort of walking the landscapes with Bellari, they don't take anything away. They don't, you know, remove any specimens. They, they draw them, they sketch them, and, and they talk about them. Um, and so, yeah, that was really a way in to um, being able to write about, um, yeah, as I mentioned, the sheer power of the natural world, because actually the most powerful force in this book is the sea or, you know, the, the earth, the natural world. Um, and also how we're drawn to it, um, in hard times as well. You know, I'm very much drawn to um, green spaces, the natural world, um, being out in the sort of natural environment when things are really tough or when I'm feeling low or, or anxious or, or whatever. Um, and I wanted to explore how it can be sort of um, like a life raft, basically. Um, when things get really hard, it, you know, the, the natural world is always there. You know, we always have the, of the moon and the tides and the and the salt and we always have the earth and we always have the crickets and the sand flies and the mosquitoes and stuff like and that the so yeah i wanted to i wanted to explore that in that way um as well but on a basic level i'm just obsessed with nature and it just is you know it excites me to write about it um and so having you know charles's diaries where he's he's very much um you know is, is very much about the natural world and the things mm. that he's categorized and the things that he's seen, you know. Um, so it was just a pleasure to write about that stuff, it's, basically. That definitely shines through, like uh, the passion that's imbued with, 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 you know, your love of nature. And and far be it from me, like, I wouldn't want to meet anyone that's not uh, as, as similarly excited about nature as you are. So, so I'm certainly glad that that's that sort of shone through <laughs> because that's that's a bit of a weird thing. That's like that's like tantamount to someone not liking animals or dogs or ice cream or something. I, don't, <laughs> yeah. I just wouldn't trust them. But um, yeah, one of the offshoots of that that I thought was kind of kind of interesting or a little bit funny was this is this is too relevant. But I just thought that with the the naturalism there was kind of that's like heavily tied in seemingly with the scientific and the explainable. And then there was kind of the the flip side of that because then there was obviously. Um, the Japanese diver that saw seemingly this demon in the water. There was Clementine with the um, the shark bones that was kind of telling fortunes or, you know, that sort of thing. So I thought that you were having fun with that too. It was like the, the different schools of thoughts and how they kind of overlap or clash with each other. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. And, and also, as I mentioned um, a bit earlier when I was talking about sort of dreaming about my, mm. my, my dad, I did want there to be a sort of dreamlike quality to some of the parts of this book because I wanted the reader to sort of question, um, is this actually, you know, is this actually happening? Is this, is this in her head? Is this, you know, what is, what is happening on this island? Is this, you know, did, did they, I, I can't, I was just about to give, you know, give something big away. I'm sorry, Blake, because I would have deleted it. <laughs> I would have deleted it from the record. <laughs> but yeah, I did want sort of um, science and exploration and progress, you know, like you would have with um, the Perlers, you know, they were all about progress, progress, money, money, you know, getting wealth from the land. And I wanted to juxtapose that with this very natural sense of, um, you know, Badari or Eliza just walking the land and, mm. and, and coming across these things. So 
I think there's that, there's always that tussle, isn't there? Sort of um, engineering and technology against sort of uh, old natural world. And, um, and I think that was never more present in something like Perling, when you had, um, you know, white people turning up and, and taking land and, and resources and um, wealth from the indigenous population. And um, yeah, that, 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 that sort of uh, dichotomy is, is all throughout this book. Absolutely. And I mean, it also like mentioning again, the natural scape, it just kind of lends itself to this such an ethereal sort of quality that it's almost impossible to not feel that you're in some sort of like dreamscape going through some of those parts. I would imagine you've been there. I, I haven't been there. Like you've, I, I've, I've purely been there through your incredibly well realized story. I haven't actually had the good fortune of going there toes in, in sand just yet. It's one of those places that really is, you know, it's a cliche, but an assault on the senses mm. in the, you know, the, the sun is glaring down and the, you've got this pale sand, but then bright red soil and just the colours of, of the sea. You know, it's, it's dizzying. It's a mm. dizzying place to be in. Um, and certainly one of those places that, you know, has to be seen to be believed. And, and, you're, and you're right, like the perfect setting for a book that has this sort of fever dream quality to it. Um, and yeah, I, you know, if, if anyone does have the chance to get out there um, to Broome in particular, there are other early pearling hubs, places like uh, Shark Bay, which you mentioned, and Cossack, um, but also up the, uh, at Cape Levique as well, mm. which is north of Broome, which is just the most beautiful sort of um, juts of land that juts out into the Indian Ocean and you know, there are some really great indigenous owned campsites up there that you can go and stay in. And it's just one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And, mm. and, and I would really recommend it. And, and just the wildlife and the nature there is just sort of OTT as well. It's just, it's, it's so good. <laughs> oh, believe me, you sold it. I'm, I'm definitely, definitely going to be going there as soon as <laughs> I possibly can. Um, Lizzie, what I always like to ask, it's kind of the crux of my show, is I always want to know, I mean, I know you've been, you made a career out of being a writer or travel writing, but I always like to know if there was a point in your, whether it's with this particular novel or if it was any other sort of stage in your, your writing career that you kind of came to a crossroads where for whatever reason, be it self-doubt, extenuating circumstances, something beyond your control, uh, kind of almost made you sort of put down the pen or give up on the, put away the keyboard and never return to to the writing sort of vocation. Was that something that you've ever sort of encountered yourself? Or if it was, then then how did you sort of prevail? How, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, well, it's, it's actually relates to how I ended up writing the book because, I, you know, as we touched on, I was a travel writer mm. for years and that was a very high octane job, you know, was traveling constantly, you know, it, it was really was a life lived on the road. Um, and it was amazing. Mm. But that's tough, you know, that's physically and mentally quite tough. And um, um, I got ill. I, 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 you know, I went through a period of ill health and was eventually diagnosed with chronic illness, um, an autoimmune disorder, which can be quite debilitating. And I was basically told to slow down. Mm. Um, and so I found that really, really tough because my identity was so woven in to, um, being someone who traveled, you know, it was a ridiculously privileged job. Of course it's a ridiculously privileged job, but it's what I did, mm. um, 
you know, I was a travel writer and that was the interest, the only interesting thing about me, right? That's, that's what I, that's how I saw it. Um, and when I got ill and was told to stop for a bit, slow down, whatever, and had this, this period of, you know, stillness of stretching in front of me, I didn't know what to do. I was sort of scrabbling around and um, that is when, you know, I'd had the idea for this book for mm. a long while. Um, and that is when I decided to apply myself fully to writing this book. Um, and so I, that was a massive crossroads moment for me because it was taking my identity away from something and putting it into something that might not work out because, yeah. you know, I wasn't writing this book for anyone. Nobody was expecting it or, or waiting for it. Um, and so, and I find this really impressive about any writer who, you know, sits in the chair and keeps going and keeps writing, especially when nobody's waiting for that book or expecting that book. Nobody's asked you to do this. You were doing this out of sort of sheer, it's just a massive risk. And it's, it's something that comes from, you know, feeling like you have to do it. Um, and so that is when I started fully applying myself to writing this book. And of course, then the pandemic hit. So mm. any career that I had in travel, journalism was wiped out overnight anyway. Yeah. So I was unwell, um, jobless, like lots of people were in the pandemic, but um, living at that point in my mum's attic bedroom. Um, and I sort of clung to this book as a life raft. And um, it, thankfully it, it worked out. <laughs> but yeah, that was definitely a real defining moment in um, my life, my working life, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find a more defining one than that, I'd imagine, because that's like a, a, a perfect storm beyond beyond your control. And um, it could have been a total sink situation, you know. As in, it was it was tough. Um, and I say this knowing that so many people went through similar stuff in in the pandemic. Mm. Um, but. I think it's one of those things like the chips are down it's really hard and that's when it brings out that real sort of fire in you I think it, it brings out that real determination and that real like no I am actually going to do this and I'm going to give this a shot because I think there's something here um, and I think hopefully lots of um, writers can relate to that in that sometimes being at rock bottom <laughs> or close to it is just the thing you need to, um, you know, propel you on your way. Oh, I definitely can. But tell, tell me, how was the how was the process for you? Did you find did, so so you were, you were doing this throughout the pandemic? Um, how how'd that go for yeah, you? So I'd, yeah, I've I've written some of the books sort of on and off um, uh, while I was either on the road traveling, sort of mm. little bits here and there, um, or. UK, um, just do it, snatching sort of um, a couple of hours at my desk whenever I could to, to write some words. So um, I wrote a first draft and left it for ages because it was appalling. It was so bad. Um, and then I started redrafting and redrafting and redrafting. Yep. I must have done into sort of 14, 15 drafts of the book before I showed it to anyone, um, which was my twin sister and my mum. Um, because I was too scared to show it to any other writers that I knew. Um, and they had some thoughts, um, which was really helpful. 
you know, they certainly didn't sugarcoat things, which was great. Oh, that's good. Made some more um, changes. Then thought, well, there's, you know, it was at that point was I had nothing to lose at that point. So I, I sent it out to some agents and um, including, you know, someone that I put on at the top of the list almost as like a joke to myself because she, it was so pie in the sky. She was such a dream agent. I thought, look, what's the point in just being um, timid about this? If yeah. you're going to send it out, just send it out to your, to your dream agent. And, and I heard back from her in like two days. Um, it was incredible. I couldn't believe it. Um, and she asked for the full manuscript and, um, I ended up signing with that dream agent within it must have been like a week or 10 days or something. You know, it was crazy. It felt quick. And I realize it, it's, it's all, it's often a lot to do with luck and timing and your manuscript, you know, landing in the right inbox at mm. the right time for that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, we sat on the book for a long while over a summer before it went out to publishers. So there was some, you know, lengthy waiting time. Um, but, Does but that mean like you were going back and forth with, with them making changes or, or has it been yeah, chopped around? Doing edits um, yep. and just waiting for the right time to submit because mm -hmm. it's always like, you know, over here in the summer holidays, it's not always the right time perhaps to submit to publishers. Or, you know, agents sometimes decide that. Um, yeah. And then and then it went out to publishers and and it sort of all went from there. So, yeah, it was it was you know, one of those things that's amazing and terrifying and, uh, you know, you, you feel like you're not actually inhabiting it in the moment. Mm. You're just, you know, looking down on yourself, living through this thing. But um, it was great. Yeah, it was, I felt very lucky. Oh, so fantastic. Good, feel good, feel good story. Particularly at a time where it's pretty, the world's pretty grim as it is. And I mean, you've acknowledged other people going through, you know, turmoil and stuff like that, but it nevertheless doesn't really diminish your own sort of experiences there. And, you know, particularly to have some sort of something as, as wonderful as that kind of take place, particularly after you persisted with it, you know, during such a fraught and kind of grim time. That's so good to hear, Lizzie. It's absolutely delightful to, to hear that about, about, um, about you. And to speak to you, I adored your book. I really did. I thought it was amazing in terms of what you you realized there it really did feel like I was there I love the balance of these really really good baddies um various um I'm an animal lover but the, the descriptions of various animals dead was just beautiful um and yeah it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you on the right way today oh thank you thank you so much for having me so everyone, there you have it. That was me and Lizzie Pook talking about her debut novel, Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter, which I can't thoroughly recommend enough. Be sure to go and get your copy now from the good folks at Penguin Random House there. Um, but yeah, huge thanks to Lizzie for talking to me uh, all the way from London there. I always like international calls. It's really cool. To that end, I'm going to be doing another one in uh, on Thursday. Thursday, speaking to someone, uh, I guess, that I'll kind of keep keep under wraps at the moment, but uh, speaking to someone internationally as well, film director, so get excited about that one. But yes, in the interim, must say thank you very much again to Lizzie for talking to me on the show tonight. Must also say a big, huge round of applause and a thank you to you as well, dear listener, for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program, as well as, I'm assuming, all other episodes of the Right Way Podcast Program that you have um, gorged yourself on by going back and listening to that, as we like to call it, ever proliferating uh, back catalogue of episodes now extending back from as far as late 2020. So yes, please uh, 
go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't already. I'm really liking seeing those numbers of people that are doing so. That's much appreciated. Makes it all worth it. Thank you so very much for doing that. If you haven't already, be sure to give a cheeky follow on Spotify. Click that follow button at the top of the page there to keep abreast of any and all new episodes of the show as they drop on that platform. <coughs> In the interim, also as well, if you haven't already, be sure to follow the, uh, the Right Way Podcast Program's Instagram if you haven't already. I've noticed people have already started to follow the Samuel Elliott Show podcast uh, Instagram as well, which is kind of a, a bit of a scaffolding or skeleton of a uh, Instagram profile at the moment. There's not much going on with it yet, pending that getting launched, but that's something that's going to be happening later in the year, uh, I do declare, so get excited about that as well. But yeah, in the interim, thank you so much to everyone for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. And my thoughts are with uh, people in Queensland and people in Ukraine at the moment, truly. So, yes, please send all your thoughts to Queensland and all your thoughts to Ukraine as well during this time because, yeah, I need not say any more. But in the interim, everyone have a good and safe night. Thank you.